tarry in Jerusalem for a little while and they will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon them. The disciples look at the risen Christ and they ask him, is it now that you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he looks at them and says, it is not for you to know times or seasons that the father is fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. They replace Judas with Matthias. And then Peter preaches this sermon at Pentecost. Where we read that the spirit fills the room. The spirit filled the disciples. And the mighty works of God are preached in every language under the sun. And that sermon Peter preached talked about. How we live in an age of fulfillment. He preached the mighty works and miracles of Christ. He blamed his audience for having crucified our Lord. He declared that the crucifixion of Christ was according to the foreordained plan and foreknowledge of God. He publicly declared that Christ was bodily resurrected. And that Christ and his resurrection were the fulfillment of the scriptures. He preached, as we sang this morning, that Christ is God and king. And then he called his audience to repentance. And 3,000 people were saved and baptized. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship and to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And that little church was holding everything in common such that no one had need. And we read that the Lord was adding to their number daily those who were being saved. Then we get to Acts chapter 3. And Peter and John go to the temple. And at the temple, there is a lame man there, a crippled man who was begging for alms. And Peter and John look at him and they say to that lame man, look at us. And he looks up at them. And Peter, through the power of Christ, heals that man. So she is no longer lying prostrate at the temple, but he is leaping and running and ends up clinging to the apostles as Peter preached his second sermon in Acts, where again he preached that we live in an age of fulfillment. He blames his audience again for crucifying Christ, declares that Jesus is God. He calls him the author of life. He publicly declares again that Jesus was resurrected, that Jesus himself is the fulfillment of the scriptures. He makes a call to repentance. And he tells his audience that there's judgment for those who reject the Christ. And 5,000 people are saved in the shadow of the temple. And God's apostles, Peter and John, are arrested that very day. They're held overnight. And the following morning, Peter preaches his third sermon. We read that he's filled with the spirit and he preaches again that Jesus was resurrected. He blames his audience again for crucifying Christ. 
He declares to these Sadducean leaders of the temple that it is the power of Christ that healed that lame, crippled man. And that Jesus is the fulfillment of the scriptures. And in fact, it is Jesus who is the greater temple. There's a statement of judgment upon the Sadducees. And again, there's a call to repentance. That's where we find ourselves today after they're released from prison. And Peter and John go to their church and to their friends. And we're going to read the bulk of our text today is actually a prayer, a prayer prayed by this little church in Jerusalem. And we're going to read in this prayer that the church humbles itself. That the church praises God as the creator and king. We're going to read the church prayed the scriptures. That the church displayed a knowledge of God's plan and purpose. And the church appeals to and embraces God's promises. Acts chapter 4 verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they they lifted their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made heaven, the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed or the Christ. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed in the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. May the Lord add his blessing to the reading of his precious word. This passage today opens with the apostles having been released from prison. And the keen reader will note why they had been released from prison. They were not released because the Sadducean leadership, because Caiaphas and Annas and the other members of the high priestly family had decided to grant clemency to these preachers. They were released because thousands upon thousands of people had seen a miracle. They had seen Peter and John through the power of Christ heal a crippled man who day by day had been coming to the temple. And they knew that man and the crowds knew that man and the crowd, the crowd's reaction to that healing was they were praising God and they were converting to Christianity by the thousands. They were acknowledging and declaring that Jesus Christ is Lord, that Jesus is the Messiah, that he is the anointed and the promised one. And these Sadducees, politically, they couldn't hold the apostles They were in the mode of preserving power and they had no interest in prayer 
only plotting how to stay in control. And the apostles are released. Bear in mind in this scene when they're released, the lame man is still there. He didn't leave those apostles. Thousands of people are probably still there putting pressure on the Sadducees to release them, to release these men. And the apostles had to overcome a temptation. Few things are as intoxicating as the adulation of a crowd. And these men did not stay there to receive the praise of men. Where did they go? They went to their friends. They could have stayed there and been filled not with the spirit, but with pride and fame. They could have engaged in that exceedingly dangerous moment. But they go see the people whom they knew best. If you have an NASB, it'll render that word friends as companion. The idea that they're trying to get out here is that these are they're going to their own. They're going people of the self. They're going to the kindred. They're going to people who are like them. They're going to their own tribe. They're they're going to their friends. When you go to your friends after undergoing a harrowing experience, that's a sweet, sweet moment. Because your friends are going to celebrate with you. Your friends are going to keep you humble as they do so. And your friends are going to make sure that you are focused on the right thing. And so Peter and John go to their friends and they report what the chief priests and the elders had said to them. So let's go back a few verses and read what it is these men of God reported to the church. Go back to verse 18 of the same chapter. So they, that is the Sadducean leadership, called them, the Peter and John, and charged them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But when Peter and John answered them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you must judge. For we cannot but speak of what we have seen and heard. And when they had further threatened them, they let them go, finding no way to punish them because of the people, for all were praising God for what had happened. They come back and tell their friends that these chief priests and elders at the temple, they've told us we're not allowed to preach and speak anymore in the name of Christ. They've threatened us. The temple priests, upon seeing this miracle of the lame man being healed, upon hearing two sermons by Peter, they went into executive session. They went amongst themselves and they acknowledged the miracle that had happened, but they denied the great worker of miracles. They had no prayer. They engaged in no fasting. They made no sacrifice. They only engaged in a conspiracy, a conspiracy to stifle the word of God and to try to secret away his apostles. That was the response of the leadership of Israel. That was the response of those people who were tending to the temple, who were tending to that place that was supposed to be the place where heaven and earth meet. But as we read last time, it was not the temple that was filled with the spirit, but it was God's people who were filled with the spirit. But whereas the Sadducean leadership's response to the lame man being healed was to conspire against Christ and his apostles. The church's response to this threat, this threat of the men who engaged in the very murder of our Lord, 
Their response was to get on their knees and pray. And I want you to think about what this church must have been experiencing at that time. This is a high stress moment. They are a few months after the crucifixion of our Lord. And they are holding on to a holy promise. That promise that we noted at the beginning. That promise that they would be his witnesses. Where? In Jerusalem. And in Judea. And in Samaria. And even to the end of the earth. They are holding on to the holy promise. That Christ sits on his throne in heaven. That Christ is king. And we merely await the full consummation when paradise lost will be paradise restored. We await the new heaven and new earth. But dear friend, Christ is king today. And then we read this prayer. And you could do worse than the way the ESV renders this. You could do worse with the beginning of your prayer than sovereign Lord. If you have the NASV, it will simply render it Lord. And I just want to, I don't do this much, but I want to say why. There's two words in view here. One is the word that's typically rendered as Lord. And forgive me, my family's from Mississippi. I went to White House High School. I didn't take Greek in a Texas Tech school law. They didn't have that class. Okay. But the Greek word typically rendered as Lord, as many of you know, is kurios. That's not the word here. And so what the ESV is trying to convey to you is that it's a different word. It is the word despotes. It is the word from which we get our word despot. So whereas kurios is a title of honor, it can be familial, it can be political, and is rightly rendered Lord, and at times despotes is rightly rendered Lord, it is generally speaking in the New Testament a term used to describe a master and like a master-servant, master-slave relationship. So if you read 1 Timothy 6 and 1, let all who are under a yoke as bondservants or slaves regard their own despotes or masters as worthy of all honor. Or you could read Titus 2 and 9, bondservants or slaves are to be uh, submissive to their own despotes or masters. When that word is used in reference to God, and this is important for this prayer, and what it is this church is preaching in this prayer, it is generally used as a term of God when he is in judgment. Second Peter 2 and 1. But false prophets also arose among the people, just as there will be false teachers among you who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the despotes, master, who bought them, bringing upon themselves swift destruction. Or Jude 1 and 4, for certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, And deny our only despotes, Master and Lord Jesus Christ. Revelation 6 and 10. The souls of those slain cried out with a loud voice, O despotes. ESV will render it Sovereign Lord, NASB Lord. 
holy and true, how long before you will judge and avenge our blood on those who dwell on the earth. So when you read this term being used by this church in Jerusalem, after the apostles of Christ have come back from being under arrest by the very people who have crucified our Lord, they are praying to God as despotes, as master. Now, why would they do that? Why that term? Well, there's meaning there. They are preaching that God is master over all the earth. He is master over the high priest. He is master over Caesar. And they liken themselves in this very prayer to bond servants. They are the bond servant. God is the despotes. Calls to mind Paul's writing to the church at Rome where he says, you are uh, slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness. And so there are many things that are being announced by Christ's coming. Of course, there's the forgiveness of sin. There's the announcement that the kingdom has come. The kingdom of God has come. There's the declaration that the kingdom itself is worldwide in nature. And the scope of the kingdom of God is broader than anyone had ever imagined. But there is a concomitant declaration of judgment on Israel. Last time I was here, we noted in Peter's third sermon, he told the Sadducees that, they're, they're the, that Jesus is the stone that the builders rejected and has become the cornerstone. And that Jesus had used that same verse, that same psalm in speaking to those same men when he said that the stone that the builders have rejected has become the cornerstone. Therefore, the kingdom is being taken away from you and being given to a people who will produce its fruit by declaring that God is despotes in this moment over the temple priests. They are saying that judgment is happening on that system. Just as John the Baptist would have said that the axe is laid at the root of the tree and the winnowing fork is in the hand of Christ and he will gather his wheat into the barn and the chaff and he will burn with fire. Just as at Pentecost, the, the language speaking, the mighty works of God is every language under the sun and not just Hebrew. Just like the spirit has filled the apostles, the spirit has filled the members of the church. The spirit has filled the room where the disciples were in Acts chapter two. The spirit filled Peter at the temple and the spirit was not in the temple. And indeed, it is thematic throughout Acts, if you, especially in the second half, every missionary journey of Paul. Where does he go first? He goes to the synagogue. He preaches a few converts. He's rejected. He goes to the Gentiles. So they open this prayer with a term used by God about God regarding judgment, because the leadership of Israel is apostate. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, he is sovereign over all things who through the mouth of our father, David, your servant said by the Holy Spirit, this is from Psalm two, what we read earlier. Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Were these apostles arrested by Roman sentries? Were these apostles arrested by some Gentile police force? 
Were these apostles carried before some Gentile king the day before? No, they were not. This church is very astute. This church has been sitting under the apostles teaching and they know. They know that the temple priests are being linked to the Gentiles. They are doing that in this prayer. They have turned against the people of God. And they have turned against the people of God and they have turned against God's anointed, the Messiah, the Christ. And by praying Psalm 2, and I think this is important to keep in mind as you read the New Testament, when a New Testament author is citing a psalm, he's referring you to the psalm. He is assuming you know the psalm. And the people who prayed this prayer, when they cite Psalm 2, when they are praying the scriptures, they know the psalm. They know it in full. And by praying this psalm, they are declaring that God is king. Psalm 2 and 6 says, as for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. But Christ is king, not just over Israel. Christ is king over the whole world. Psalm 2, 7 and 8 says, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. And unlike any other religion that seeks to have the nations as the possession of its anointed leader, those nations are to be the possession of Christ, not through the sword, but through the great commission. And any attempt to do otherwise has been a gross error in the church. We are called to make disciples of all peoples and tribes and tongues. That begins to happen in the book of Acts. By Acts chapter 8, they're in Samaria. And by the end, Paul is in the seat of the Gentile world. He is in Rome. He is getting an audience with Caesar himself. We read on, for truly in this city they were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel. He's noting that the people of Israel and the false king of Judea, Herod, along with Pilate, that is Roman governorship, and the and the Gentiles of the world are gathered together against the Christ. The whole world is gathered against the Christ. The whole world is gathered against Christ's people. Reminding us of Jesus's promise that in this world you will have trouble or tribulation, but fear not because I have what? Say it. Jesus Christ has overcome the world. Do you believe that? And if he has overcome the world, he has overcome all things. It is a fight accompli. And we are with Christ making disciples of all nations, embarking upon the culmination of the promise that every knee shall bow and every tongue shall confess. They declare God's sovereignty here. Do you see that? 
to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. Peter Peter preached that Christ was handed over according to the foreordained plan and foreknowledge of God. The definite plan and foreknowledge of God. Isaiah tells us that God has declared the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done. Dear friend, God has decreed all things and nothing can happen outside of his holy will. And so this church, the church is new. The church is months old, but this church is steeped in the scriptures. These people know the apostles teaching and these people worship a sovereign God. And in this prayer, as Peter and John have been released from prison by the very people who killed Christ, by the very people who took part in his crucifixion and made sure that Pilate had no choice but to crucify him. They do not make a plea for safety, but they make an appeal to the promise. And what is that promise? That promise is the gospel would go to all nations. That gospel is the kingdom would grow like the mustard seed and be the largest plant in the garden, such that the birds would make the nests and the leaves thereof. They have the promised spirit. When Jesus said to the disciples that the Holy Spirit will come upon you with power, that is to happen so that they can be his witnesses, not as conquering kings, but as those making disciples throughout the nations. And so what is the prayer that they have? Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants To continue to speak your word with all boldness. They want to be empowered to speak the word of God boldly. And what is the word of God? What is the word of God regarding Christ? It is that Jesus Christ is the son of God. Jesus Christ was born of a virgin. Jesus Christ fulfilled the scriptures. Jesus Christ was put to death by the hands of wicked men, according to the foreordained plan of God. Jesus Christ was buried in a tomb and he rose again bodily on the third day. And he ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of the God and he of God. And he shall come again to judge the living and the dead. That is the word of God. And it is to be preached boldly and nothing will ruin your ears to bad preaching like good doctrine. Right? If your doctrine is sound, you will not tolerate some milquetoast preacher who can't stand that the word of God speaks with clarity. Am I right? John and Peter were no such men. They spoke the word of God boldly and in grave danger. And this church took that as an example, and they prayed to God that they would that God would give them the boldness to preach boldly the kingdom of heaven. And that Christ has come as an atonement for sin. And God answered that prayer. If you pray that the God that God will fulfill the great commission, he'll answer that prayer. He's going to do that. He's in the process of doing that. 
God's promises are all yes and amen. And indeed, he did answer that prayer. And these men did preach with boldness. And part of what they preached, part of what they invariably preached, is they preached that Jesus gave his life as a sacrifice for sin, and he called his listeners to repentance. Throughout the book of Acts, these sermons declare that Christ is resurrected, that his life paid, that his death paid the penalty for sin, and there is a call to repentance. And indeed, that very psalm they prayed has a call to repentance. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. We need to take refuge in Christ. The way to take refuge in Christ is to repent of your sins, to declare that you are a sinner and to cling to Christ just as that crippled man clung to the apostles when they were preaching. And then once you repent and the Lord has saved you, you are to continue preaching the word of God in your daily life, not just here. It's easy here. You got to go to work tomorrow and preach the word of God and the way you live life and the way you conduct yourself with others, the way you have lunch with somebody, the way you text, the way you drive, the way you have a phone call, the way you interact with people, even people opposed to you. You are living the gospel or you better be because we are called to keep fruit, to bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Now, isn't this a beautiful story? Isn't this wonderful? Isn't the word of God good? The Lord has blessed this church, hasn't he? I mean, I remember going a year, I think, without seeing a baptism in this church. And the Lord is adding to our number. He's bringing us people who love Jesus, who love God's people, who love the word. I want to tell you what the next two stories are in Acts. I mean, this is powerful stuff, right? Two men get out of prison. And the very people who killed Christ and they come to their friends and they're praying the scriptures and the very building where they're praying is shaken. And all these people are filled with the spirit. And the next story is how they're holding everything in common and selling everything to make sure no one has need. But there were two members of that church named Ananias and Sapphira. They said they sold their land for so much when they didn't. And two sections after the one we're in today. Church members are literally carrying out the bodies of those who had lied to the Holy Spirit in God's house. We are not promised peace. We're not. We are experiencing a time of peace and a time of growth in this church. And we need to bear in mind, Sylvania Church, that we must 
bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Because if we get prideful in our growth, if we get prideful in what we're seeing, that pride will manifest itself in division. It will manifest itself in great trouble and it will be dishonoring to God. But I want to end on a dour note, even though that's kind of my personality. I want to praise God for what we've seen today. We've seen the manifestation of souls saved by two baptisms. We've sung praises to the king. We've read and prayed and preached the word of God. And we need to praise him for bringing us together as a community in Christ. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for all you've done for us. Thank you for your son, our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Thank you for making us a people who are not a people. Bind us together in Christ. Keep us at peace. Keep us unified and bless us and cause us to worship you and cause us to bear fruit for the kingdom. In Christ's name, amen.